Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The people who are trying to search for truth can't do it unless there's a safe democratic system. We should not only be supporting work we agree with or work that makes us comfortable. We as academics need to be bringing forth work that we think is solid, but that is going to make some people upset potentially. Our show is about fixes. Not the same old left versus right. I am right, I'm right. and you are wrong. You're wrong. Yeah, something new. How to make the world a better place. How, How do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? Hey, Richard here. We've talked about trigger warnings on the show, and this is our first. We are just editing the show and realized there's some explicit content in this episode, including the mention of a sexual act. So if you're listening with kids, just a heads up. We like to think that science should exist outside of politics. Right, that facts are facts and good scientists should follow the facts wherever they lead. But our guest today argues that our ideal of rational, non-ideological science is actually under attack in many academic fields today. Alice Dreger is an historian who studies the history of medicine and sexuality. Alice is the author of the new book, Galileo's Middle Finger. This is just such a fascinating book, and it looks at how political ideologies are infiltrating scientific debates, especially in the social sciences. And in some cases, researchers who challenge the conventional wisdom have been ostracized, attacked, and even driven out of their fields. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And in the studio with us, our producer, Miranda Schaefer. Alice is joining us via Skype from East Lansing, Michigan. So, so Alice, usually when we think of attacks on science from a political angle, we think of things coming from conservatives, you know, people who question climate change or evolution. But what makes your book so interesting is you mostly focus on attacks coming from the left. What's going on here? Yeah, I mean, the attacks from conservatives are certainly very serious, in part because those are often attacks that cause scientists great difficulty in funding and getting their research out there. But I'm really looking at how activists go after scientists who have ideas that the activists don't like, usually about human identity issues. For example, I trace a lot of issues of sexuality and gender in the book, where the activists feel that what the scientist is saying about them is not something that they want out there, and so they go after the scientist personally. You've challenged the medical establishment on behalf of of intersex people. That's how you began your work, right? 
Yes, and intersex actually can also involve when you have one sex type on the outside of the body and a different type in terms of your internal organs, or you could have mixed organs inside. So it's not only external ambiguity, although that's the one most people think of. And I got into that work because I did a uh, history of her- the treatment of the people that were called hermaphrodites in the 19th century. And the people who were working on the intersex rights movement at that time, this was in the mid-1990s, got in touch with me and asked me to help them. So I became one of the leaders of the intersex patient rights movements, and I've done that work for about the last 20 years. Alice, can you explain what intersex is? Because it's a little confusing to a lot of people. Sure. Intersex is when somebody is born with a body type that isn't the standard for the male type or the female type. So that may be ambiguous genitalia when they're born, uh, genital type that's in between male and female development, or it can also mean that outside you have the sex parts of one sex, but inside you have some of the organs of the other sex. It can also mean you have mixed organs inside. So for example, in some cases you can be born with both ovaries and testes, although it's fairly rare you can actually be born with both of them. And then uh, more than a decade ago, you got involved with a case of a researcher named Michael Bailey. Uh, tell us what happened there. Michael Bailey is a psychologist, sex researcher at Northwestern University, and I had just moved to Northwestern. What had happened to him was that he had put forth an idea about transsexualism, specifically people who begin as male but transition to become female. And he put forth an unpopular idea, which was that it wasn't just about gender. It was also about sexual orientation. And this was a no-no among a lot of the activists who wanted to desexualize um, discussions about transgender. Yeah, explain why that was so controversial, this idea of, of sex as as opposed to gender identity. When I talk about sex, we're talking about the biology you're born with. So we're talking about anatomy and physiology. And when we're talking about gender, we're talking about how you feel about yourself as a boy or a girl or a man or a woman. Historically, people who wanted to transition were often denied the right if they were anything other than homosexually oriented in terms of their sex. And the reason was that basically the medical establishment was holding up an old standard, which said that there are only two types of people in the world. So if you wanted to switch over and appear to be a straight person, that was okay. But if you showed any other kind of sexuality, there was often a lot of roadblocks put up with people saying you wouldn't pass, you wouldn't be able to be convincing because you wouldn't end up looking straight. And so, so there were so a tremendous two number types of roadblocks. Of, only two types of people, meaning a straight, straight female or straight male. Uh, in the way that you ended up, yes. Yeah. And, and so there were a lot of roadblocks put up. And over time, a lot of transgender people were able to convince the medical establishment that the issue should be about gender and not about sex. That is to say, it should be about how you feel in terms of your own identity. But Bailey was coming back in not against transition whatsoever. And he assisted transgender women who had begun as males and who were seeking transition. Uh, but his issue was that he wanted to say scientifically there are sexual issues at play here. And that was extremely controversial. And the people who came after him came after him because they didn't like what he was saying about their identities. So he'd stepped on a landmine that uh, that really upset some of the people in the activist community, and they came after him in some ways that you document in your book that were pretty alarming. I mean, they didn't just argue with him on the facts. Yeah, he knew there were bombs around him. I think what he didn't know is that the landmines were nuclear. Um, yeah. And so, Why when, were people so upset? Well, they were upset because they were afraid he was going to change the public understanding of transgender, that he was going to cause people to think that it was a sexual fetish, which is not what he was saying, but they were afraid that's what he was going to do. They had told themselves a story about their transition being only about gender, not about sexuality. They had told the world the story. And rather than going after the message and trying to criticize the message, they went after the messenger and tried to make it look like he had um, committed research fraud, that he had abused research subjects, that he had committed all sorts of terrible things. 
things. And they made formal charges against him one after another. None of it was true. They should have known that none of these charges were true, but that they had thrown everything they possibly could at him and had nearly ruined his life. And then you published a a huge piece of work investigating this. And how was your counterargument accepted in the community? Well, in terms of the research community, it was widely hailed as an extremely important piece of work because I had gone in and actually showed what had happened was the attempt to kill a messenger. But in terms of um, the transgender activists who had come after him, they then came after me, which was extremely unpleasant. They came after me with everything they had. And so as a consequence, I had two choices, one of which was to go hide and never come out of the closet again in terms of my own historical work. And the other choice was to go forward. And so I decided to apply for a Guggenheim Fellowship to try to investigate what happens when researchers like this get attacked. And that's what this book is, is the result of that Guggenheim Fellowship. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. We're speaking with Alice Dreger, an historian who studies the history of medicine and sexuality here on How Do We Fix It? Another case you cover in your book, Galileo's Middle Finger, I love that title, uh, is that of the famous anthropologist Napoleon Chagnon, who studied uh, Indians in Venezuela. What, what happened to him? What's, what's that controversy all about? Well, Shagdan was an anthropologist, uh, still is an anthropologist, who did research among the Yanomama people who live in the area that sort of borders Brazil and Venezuela. And uh, he had gone in and done many decades of work. And what happened was a group of cultural anthropologists increasingly didn't like his work. He was saying that the way people behave is not just about their cultures. It's actually about the way that we're born in terms of our genes. And uh, some of what he traced was showing that the Yanomama people, like other people, are often violent or often uh, violence is often surrounded around sexuality issues, so it often has to do with fighting over women. He was looking at drug use among the Yanomama, a lot of stuff that, from his point of view, just makes them as human as the rest of us, that his attitude was, this is the same stuff you see in America or Europe or anywhere else. Uh, so, Alice, I actually studied a little bit of anthropology in college during the heyday of the era when all Native peoples were people really endeavoring to see them as wonderful examples of peace and harmony. Not violent. And the notion that there might be violence or other unpleasant things uh, in some of these communities was uh, widely regarded as sort of a myth of imperialists and and racists. And and so... 
that's the myth called the noble savage myth. And this is something that upset Shaggy down a lot because he felt that this was an unjust representation of people that we should take much more seriously. Um, and what happened to him was Patrick Tierney, the journalist, came after him in a very important book called Darkness in El Dorado, which made the charge that Chagnon and, and the physician he had worked with, James Neal, had created a situation of infecting people with measles among the Anamam to, to see who would live and who would die. This is not true, but um, Tierney was able to put the work out there in The New Yorker and then in his book that was published by Norton. And then the American Anthropological Association decided to use that book to come after Chagnon personally, and they essentially formed a prosecution team and went after him for two years. Um, what I showed in my work, because I ended up doing a year-long investigation of that one as well, was that the leaders of that investigation knew that Tierney's book was false, but they decided to go after Chagnon because they needed to sort of hold him up as proof that they cared about indigenous people. So this was really about him as a person rather than about what he was talking about, right? I think from their point of view, they were engaging the ideas, but they were doing so in such a way that they were personally going after him and not really bothering to look at the evidence of what they knew and to be true or false. So, for example, the American Anthropological Association allowed to have a statement in the report from one indigenous spokesperson who made the claim that Chagnon had paid his subjects to murder each other and that the more they murdered each other, the more he would pay them. I mean, it's just an absolutely outrageous claim. And yet the American Anthropological Association was willing to put that forward as if it was something that was okay to say. And they didn't even question it in the report because their attitude was you don't question what indigenous people say. You let them say whatever they need to say. And that's just them representing their experience and their personal point of view. And that raises a really disturbing problem among many scientists and and the rest of us as well, which is our our echo chamber. We speak to people we agree with and we don't consider the views seriously of those who have profoundly different points of view. I think that's right. And one of the things that we can do to fix this, to use the theme of your podcast, is that we can actually use scientific societies and academic meetings in order to have civil debate. You know, uh, Richard used the term echo chamber. And I think one of the things we're seeing a lot in academia is a stronger ideological tilt in one direction. Um, Jonathan Haidt at NYU Stern Business School recently cited a study of leading professional society of academic psychologists. About 90% of them describe themselves as left of center. Only 3% call themselves right of center. And I think out of the whole group of over 300 people, something like only three or four of them had actually voted for the Republican in the previous election. Yeah, that's amazing that only 3% describe themselves as right of center. Yeah. That's a stunning number. And so um, his take is that this has intensified in in the last 15 or 20 years as the old, I mean, the the pre-baby boom generation of academics left the field in the 90s. So are we are we seeing universities becoming ideological bubbles? And and if you're in that bubble, isn't it hard to see your own biases? Well, I mean, it does raise the question, right? Should we have affirmative action programs for conservatives? But um, <laughs> yeah, right. I, I, I mean, if we really talk about the idea that the reason we should have affirmative action is because of ideological diversity, then we would take very seriously what other kinds of ideological diversity we're lacking. But, you know, universities have always been centers of progressivism ever since the modern university came around. Um, we say truth has a liberal bias. And I think that's true. If what you're doing is pursuing truth, then what you tend to do is want to have systems in place that tend to be liberal liberal system, systems that function as defending the individual's right to inquire tend to be liberal systems. And so I think between that and the fact that academia doesn't pay particularly well tends to draw people who frankly are progressives, who are interested in going places because they want to achieve particular ideological things at a cost to themselves. And universities historically have been a safe place to do that. 
they're less safe nowadays, both because of attacks from the outside. So in Wisconsin, we see the governor, for example, trying to essentially shut down university systems to a large extent. But the, And we've seen this in North Carolina, for example, as well. But we also see the problem within the universities of the ideological bubble, where you have this sort of rampant, um, it's not even progressivism, it's sort of this knee-jerk liberalism that causes people to shut each other down on the basis of you're making me uncomfortable. And that, I think, is tremendously dangerous. Uh, when I resigned my position from Northwestern this past year, I think I was having a sort of side effect of that, which was my my dean decided that the stuff I was saying might upset some people, and so he censored my work. And, you know, I can't work in systems like that, but the result is it means there's no safe place for people like me to do work. Um, I now live off of a patron, but also my own income from writing and speaking. And so I'm, I'm a scholar living outside the system because the university systems are not even safe anymore. Can you talk about that some more, actually? Sure. How do you feel about the word blowjob? Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I, Keep on going. Talk. Sex? I read that paper. You published a paper by a, a man who had a spinal cord injury. And yeah, uh, you, in, can, you can take it from there. Sure. So th- this is Bill Pease, who's actually a cultural anthropologist at Syracuse University. And he happens to be a paralyzed man. He was writing about the experience he had when at the age of 18, he became paralyzed from the waist down. And he was talking about his experience in a rehab hospital. And in the 1970s, rehab hospitals were new things. They were very experimental. They were also long-term. So people developed long-term relationships. And he tells the story about how at the age of 18, he's asking all these questions about his sex life. And the doctors have no answers. They won't answer him. They don't know the answers. And so uh, there were nurses there who sometimes had sexual relationships with some of the male patients who wanted that. They didn't all do this. But he tells the story of one nurse providing him oral sex in order to reassure him that he could still have sex. It's not a sexy scene as he describes it. He had just lost bladder control. He had hit the nurse button to have help changing the sheath. He's crying. And she knows he's upset about his sexuality. So she goes down on him and he says that that moment I knew I was going to be okay and that someday I was going to be able to even be a father, which he (laughs) did end up becoming. But my dean found this essay, this first person essay, so incredibly upsetting. He gave an order to pull it offline and remove it from the system. And I tried for eight. 18 months to talk him out of it because I said, I have this book coming out on academic freedom. And then the book did come out. And I said, I now have a major, you know, national discussed book on academic freedom. You've censored me. I've asked you to undo the censorship. I can't be a hypocrite. And so I finally did just resign. I can't work in a system where I can't publish things that upset people. Okay. Well, our show is How Do We Fix It? So Alice, uh, what do you want to do about this? What are some What are some solutions? Well, on that point, I would say one solution is not to tolerate university administrators who don't support academic freedom. But one thing we could do is adopt the Chicago statement, which came out of the University of Chicago, basically saying that our job is to disagree with each other. Our job is to raise uncomfortable questions. That's what we do for democracy. But then the other thing I would say is that, you know, we have to we have to publish things that make ourselves uncomfortable. I'll tell you, when I read Bill Peace's article, I squirmed a little. (laughs) I said, well, I was squirming a little as you were talking. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I did. And he does not advocate doing this in modern hospitals by any means. One of the things he says, is he calls it the dark ages of rehab medicine. He's, he's not saying this should happen. But what he is saying is we still don't address the sexual needs of people with disability. And he's absolutely right. And so I think one of the things we have to do is recognize that we should not only be supporting work we agree with or work that makes us comfortable. We as academics, especially as journal editors, need to be bringing forth work that we think is solid, but that is going to make some people upset potentially because that's what we do. And that is the whole history of science. I mean, you know, it's exactly. the challenging of the conventional wisdom, of the received wisdom based on evidence, based on facts. The Chicago statement you mentioned is is really um, something important because it, it commits universities to a tangible statement of academic freedom. One of the lines in it is, 
Without a vibrant commitment to free and open inquiry, a university ceases to be a university. That's exactly right. And that's that's some of what I was saying in my resignation letter, you know, was was exactly that, which is if I if I don't exist in a place where there can be a plurality of ideas and disagreement, then I'm not really in a university. So what's really the point? Right. Um, another one of your points, I think, is a, is a really important one and a subtle one is to understand the critical codependence of science, the search for truth and democracy, the quest for justice. Yeah, so science and democracy actually grew up together historically, and they came about at the same time. And both of them are very concerned with um, peer review. So within, we know what that looks like in science. Within democracy, that's what elections are. Elections are peer review. That's what a Supreme Court of nine people is about. That's what the checks and balances system of the three branches of government are about. It's the idea that if you have more people looking at something, you're going to get better knowledge out of it and better systems. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the Supreme Court because I think one of the healthiest things in our democracy every June is to listen to their arguments, listen to the arguments of, of both sides or several sides rather than just, you know, getting the the decision. That's right. And it is a very healthy thing. And the jury system, if it's functioning correctly, is a very healthy thing within a democracy, as are elections. Uh, but one of the things we have to recognize is that the people who are trying to search for truth can't do it unless there's a safe democratic system. And a safe democratic system can't really exist and function well if we don't have truth seekers who tell us what the reality of the world is. So you can't have good policy, for example, on rape if you don't know what rape is really about. You can't have good policies on um, health care if you don't know how the body actually functions and how economic systems function within healthcare. So you may not be comfortable when you find out what the answer is to something, but if we have good science, then the policy we build can be sustainable policy. On the subject of policy, I think one of the other avenues for making sure the public is informed is journalism. I know you have some concerns about changes in the economics of journalism. And you think we need to look for new ways to support serious investigative journalism. I've been working in patient advocacy for about 20 years. So what I've worked on for 20 years is trying to have healthcare systems treat patients better, to follow the evidence and to use more ethical systems. And I worked with that primarily in intersex care, but I've also expanded out doing it in other areas as well. And 20 years ago, when I was you know, starting out doing patient advocacy, there was a healthy investigative journalism system. And so you could get investigative journalists to look at the things you were looking at and to say, okay, yeah, this is broken. And they'd bring it to the public and that would cause the healthcare systems to react. They would start to fix things. But today it's extremely difficult for me to find any investigative journalist who will pick up anything I'm working on and help me with it because they simply don't exist. Editors don't have the money to pay reporters uh, to do long-term stories even if they do a long story, people don't want to read a longer story. And then even if somebody does a short story, everybody else picks it up and writes commentaries on it. And people tend to read the commentaries, not the actual work. So none of the benefit economically accrues back to the people who paid for the investigation. And as a consequence, there's just no economic system for paying for investigative journalism. It's similar to how in university systems, there's less and less money to pay people like me and do investigative history. And as a consequence, you've got a system where we don't really know what's going on a lot of the time. People are commenting on commenting on commenting, but they're not actually finding out what the truth is. And as someone who's worked much of my career in mainstream popular science journalism, I often find that so many journalists, when they're kind of pressed for time or they're banging out short pieces, they'll run a press release of any kind of research from any kind of organization without even doing the most basic footwork of their own to find out if it's a legitimate paper or not. 
Right. So in the past, I mean, it wasn't a perfect system, but you at least had a system whereby if somebody did really good investigative journalism, it paid directly. People bought the newspaper. So when the Watergate scandal was going on, for example, people would pay for the Washington Post or they'd pay for the New York Times if there was important work coming out. And when they didn't trust those papers, they stopped buying them. So there was a check system in place where basically people would pay if it was good news. And now what you have today is clickbait systems. So if you, you know, put up a kitty cat or you put up some outrageous claim about chocolate milk deals with concussions well, then people will click on it and the click actually results in a reward. So the more outrageous, the more ridiculous, the more sensationalistic the news, the more likely you are to get paid. So the economic system we have now is a disaster for truth. Alice Dreger making an appeal for truth. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Jim, one of the things I really liked about Alice and about this show is something that we've been banging on for a while, which is suspicion of dogma, that she feels that you need to follow the truth wherever it goes. Yeah, absolutely. And we've done a, you know, a number of shows on this and about the climate of, of suspicion of free speech on college campuses. What's so interesting about her story is she comes very much out of the heart of the progressive view of, of gender and sexuality, and it's been a passionate you know, a defender of the rights of these these maligned, overlooked people. And yet, as she saw people who stepped just slightly out of line of the progressive orthodoxy in, in, in some cases, and then they got hammered by people defending a certain ideological view. And she's a real, you know, she believes in science. I mean, that's why she cites Galileo, you know, who challenged the Catholic Church. It's sad that the very people who are trying to champion rights today are often have their own ideological agenda that's so powerful they're willing to take down people and and malign other academics in ways that are really quite frightening. One of the things that Alice said I thought which is profound and, and worth really thinking about is she said it's not my job to make people comfortable. Right. And that's been a big heart of a lot of this debate on college campuses. If you say something that upsets me or challenges my beliefs, you're not just making an argument, you're hurting me in some way. But it's not just college campuses. It's also institutions like the American Anthropological Association. Well, I would argue other it's, groups. it's particularly a mode of thought in academic circles. And, and so I think she's very brave to focus her book primarily on the progressive left-wing side. However... And, and the, she's not... She did not oh, sound not, like she's a conservative not, not at all. A bit. I think and, that's the important and thing. The thre- and she in the book, she has some good examples of some really stupid threats coming from the right-wing, including from politicians. People, po- politicians yeah. and, um, and it's absolutely important to challenge that. But in a way, it's an old-fashioned enlightenment idea. We should go where the facts lead us, regardless of ideology or what group we're a member of or any other factor. Now, another thing that Alice raised which is really very disturbing, we, we need to do a show on this, is, is the reduction or the absence of investigative reporting. But I'll bet you that there are many fine newspapers that used to have, for instance, health correspondents that no longer have them. Right. And now they may have somebody much more junior banging out web copy, a stupid press release. She mentioned this ridiculous study that chocolate milk, some particular brand of chocolate milk maybe help concussions in football players. There's actually no paper attached to it. There's just a press release citing but, a paper that has been published. Sexy, yeah. <laughs> and that got that stuck kind of stuff gets picked up. I covered this a lot at Popular Mechanics when I was there. It's um it's it's really challenging for institutions that don't have reporters on topics long term 
to do a credible job, especially in science. Yeah, I know that my wife works at an environmental group, and there are very few environmental reporters now, uh, especially in uh, network organizations. Yeah, I'm fully on board with her critique of what's happening in the academic world. I think it's going to be the work of a generation or generations to undo the hole that we've dug ourselves. But I, I'm actually more optimistic about journalism. I mean, just look at the podcast we're doing. Look at her book. It's not happening in official institutions as much, but the space is still there. And when people do have an interesting, provocative idea, the very Internet that, that she's concerned undermines the economics of in-depth journalism also enables distribution of ideas in ways that were a lot harder before. The show is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we were joined by Alice Dreger talking about the importance of truth in science. Our show is produced by Miranda Schaefer. And our audio engineer and technician is... Denise Barbarita at the beautiful Mono Lisa Studios here in Uptown Manhattan. The music you're listening to, composed by Lou Stravinsky. Our show is produced by Davies Content. We make digital audio for... A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Businesses and nonprofits.